All right, welcome back to Lindrop Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. Um, we are here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindrop. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. We have another guest right around the same age as me, played yep. hockey when I, you know, would have loved to have played hockey. Uh, so I'm excited about this guest. Why don't you give us the intro? Yeah, so today we have Steve Seftel with us today. So Steve began playing juniors in the OHL with the Kingston Canadians from 1985 to 1988. And during that time was drafted in the second round by the Washington Capitals during the 1986 NHL draft. He played professionally with the Baltimore Skipjacks in the AHL from 88 to 91, while getting the call up for his first string of NHL games with the Washington Capitals, and later finished his career with the Baltimore Skipjacks in 91-92 season. He currently has a book published that's titled Shattered Ice, detailing his incredible hockey journey starting in juniors all the way to the NHL with insight about mental health. So without further ado, we'll please welcome our guest today, Steve Septel. Thanks for joining us today, man. Thanks, Chef. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Jim, it's a pleasure to be on the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. Yeah, thank you much. So we're going to reference Shattered Ice uh, throughout the podcast, and I want to kind of use some of the stories that uh, you write about in uh, that book to talk about your early part of your career. So I want to get right to it. You, you talk about in the book, um, how you've uh, had to give up dating at age 16 and 17. I mean, you talk about sacrifice. We usually ask our guests, what does it take to sacrifice to you know, be a pro hockey player? I mean, right there, you're, you're making a huge sacrifice. Is that a true story or what? That is a true story. And uh, I have a chapter in, my, in Shattered Ice called Kissing Disease. So when I was a 15-year-old, hockey player, I contracted mononucleosis, which is known as the infamous kissing disease. Now, you can get it from kissing, and I did have a girlfriend at the time, but you can also get it from other things like sharing a glass or utensils with someone who's infected. It's not only passed on through kissing, but I did have a girlfriend, and um, so it shut me down. Mono is a is an uh, infection that really takes a lot out of you physically, uh, drains you of all your energy, so I missed a a really important part of my hockey season right in the middle and uh, leading up to the playoffs. Never. I did get back to playing that year, but, um, and at the OHL draft in 1984, I was not picked, although I was, I would have been an underage selection if I was selected, but I wasn't picked. So at the end of that year, I knew that the next year was my real time to get drafted. And it had, it was going to, that was going to be my year. So I made three conscious decisions going into the next hockey season and one of them was that I would not date girls for the next 12 months from that point till uh, the draft of 1985 and I did stay true to that uh, goal I didn't have a girlfriend what's funny though is right after the OHL draft in 1985 I did start dating another girl (laughs) so So it did I did stay true for the year but um yeah, I came back to girls after that. There was two other parts of that. And um, one was that I wanted to get stronger. A lot of my coaches told me I had to get stronger. So I, I did do that and uh, worked on my physical conditioning. And the other tough one for me, um, I love lacrosse. I was a lacrosse player growing up. I was a, That was my summer sport. And I always encourage kids to play other sports. Um, 
dabble in those other sports that you want to play. But once I got to that point, I felt like I had to really focus. So the other thing I did do there is I stopped playing lacrosse and I focused primarily on hockey, making that kind of my dream. So was it at that point that you said, hey, I might be able to be a pro hockey player around that point? Or did that come later on? It was right around there because I grew up in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, of The Kitchener Rangers of the Ontario Hockey League are uh, the big game in town here. And I watched the Rangers as a boy, like through my youth, uh, going to Ranger games is a big part of Friday nights in Kitchener here. And uh, so I watched players before me, like Scott Stevens, Paul Reinhardt, um, going back farther, Dwight Foster, and uh, Brian Bellows. I mean, I could go on. The Rangers had had a pipeline to the NHL. So I knew from my youth that many players from the OHL would eventually go on to the NHL. So I guess that's where the dream kind of was starting, where you're like, if I can get to that league, maybe I'll have a shot. So you, uh, again, I want to get into the book a little bit. And this kind of also brings into, uh, and again, the book for our listeners that don't know, Shattered Ice is, is basically your journey through hockey. And of course, uh, a large part of that is, is some of the mental health issues that you had to overcome all the way until you know recently, uh, which is part of the reason why you actually, part of the process was writing this book. But you do talk about, and I think it's important for our listeners to uh, experience a little bit about OHL junior hockey, where you know, you're 16, 17, your parents drop you off. Uh, and, you know, you have this thing called, you know, you're being billeted where you actually stay at a host family's house if, for another word, Andrew, uh, where today's hockey players, they probably go on to play uh, college hockey. Uh, Steve, you, you were a, a, a true uh, junior hockey OHL guy and you actually had to live with host families at age 17, correct? That is correct. And, you know, looking back, it was something we didn't even question and, and they still don't today. You just know you get on that train and and those are the things you have to do. But it really is a big uh, change of life. You switch schools, you move to a new city in most cases. And as you said, you live with a billet family. And these, in my case, I remember very specifically getting dropped. So Kingston, where I played junior, was four hours basically away from my hometown of Kitchener. So my parents weren't coming to visit me on the weekends. Like they dropped me off and they returned home. And I remember being dropped off at the arena, some introductions with the team at training camp and the coaching staff. And then it was billet assignments. So at three o'clock, my parents dropped me off at 7 PM. Just a few hours later, I was being dropped off at a billet home. And these people are complete strangers. They're welcome you, welcoming you into their home. You're going to live with them and you're going to rely on them to help you get through this really challenging part of your life with a new school and adjusting to a new city and, and then having to play hockey at the same time, you know, the stress of that as well. So it's a big challenge for a 16, 17 year old young athlete. What is the, uh, your experience of, you know, you're playing, you know, midget, now you're playing in the OHL and all of a sudden you drop the gloves and, you know, you're playing against men here. You're, you're going up against 19, 20 year olds. And, you know, uh, what was that experience like? It must've been eye opening. It was 
definitely eye-opening. I talk about that in Shattered Ice too. And so I'll give you a little bit of background. On the second day of training camp for me with the Kingston Canadians, I injured my ankle. It ended up turning into a fracture. So I broke my ankle. I didn't find that out for a few weeks later. But we started our first, uh, our exhibition season in Peterborough. Gets the Peterborough Peets. That was our first exhibition game. I was on crutches, so I traveled with the team to the game in Peterborough. And uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, the puck dropped and the fight started. And I say in the book, there was, uh, I believe, 183 minutes and penalties called in that game. And I just stood there and watched and I just kind of jaw dropping, just thinking, like, I've never seen anything like this. Again, in midget hockey, there's really no fighting. And if you do fight, you're ejected and you have cages. So, I mean, usually there might be a couple punches with a glove on, but there's no fighting really. And to see these toe-to-toe scraps was quite jaw-dropping. And then uh, follow that up one more. So then our first home game was back in Kingston against our arch rivals, which were the Belleville Bulls, just 40 minutes down the highway. And the rink was packed. I'll never forget this too. We have this packed arena for an exhibition game. And I remember thinking, okay, I know these guys are our arch rival, but why are there... Why is there 3,500 people jamming this arena to capacity for an exhibition game? Well, I knew as soon as the puck dropped, when again, the uh, altercations started. And that game had 299 minutes in penalties in two periods. And they, because it was September, you know, and you're, you know, in the arena when it's warm in September, sometimes you get the fog forming. Yeah. Because of the summer heat outside still. So we had to cancel the third period because the fog inside the rink was getting too heavy to see for referees, players. So those 299 minutes were in two periods. Um, So, but for me personally, so I'm out with the broken ankle. I'll just fast forward here. I came back in November and I remember not only did I want to get in the lineup and play, but I was obsessed with having my first fight. And not only did I want to play, I wanted to get that fight out of the way. And, you know, looking back, it seems kind of silly, but that's it's part of the sport. It's part of the culture. I mean, it's an ongoing discussion in hockey. What do we do with fighting? I mean, it's not something we can solve in a one-hour podcast. But right. I look back and think, why? It's a bit of a shame that I was so obsessed with wanting to, to get that scrap out of the way. Or maybe it was a good thing. But I did do it. Uh, my first fight was in Cornwall in January of 1986. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just part of hockey, although things are changing, as we, we know there's less fighting in the game now, for sure. Well, you didn't, you didn't mention how, how you did in the bout. Oh, well, the, my first bout in Cornwall was we were pretty much both uh, went away unscathed. Um, and I remember being so pumped about it to just have that fight out of the way and uh, and not to have been battered in the meantime. So it was a win-win that day. So I got in several other altercations along the way, but I'll, I'll fast forward again, give you one good story. A couple months later, we were playing that arch rival Belleville Bulls again. And it was a pretty spirited game, getting close to playoff time when you're trying to battle for positions for playoff uh, appearances, you know, positioning. And it was, a, it was a pretty heated game, and I was lined up against one of their tougher players. His name was Todd Hawkins. He was drafted by Vancouver, I believe, and he did play some pro hockey. 
but he was one of their tougher guys. He was a 19 year old and I was a 17 year old rookie. And it was a tough, it was one of those games where it was just in the heat of the battle. And uh, I challenged him to a fight and uh, he let the rookie know who, who was the dominant, <laughs> dominant dog <laughs> on that day. He knocked me out um, with a big punch to the mouth. I remember seeing it on video later on after the fight and my legs just like buckle underneath me at the same time. And I pretty much just melt into the ice. (laughs) And I do remember waking up on the ice and thinking I have to get to the penalty box under my own power. Like I did not want the trainer to have to come out. I wanted to get to the box just for myself, maybe for my team, just to say I could tough enough to get up. Yeah, you gave me a licking, but I'm going to get to the box on my own. I ended up needing a root canal after that one. He knocked oh. with a mouth guard in. He knocked, he loosened my two front teeth, which tells you how hard he hit me. Jeez. Um, so that, <laughs> that was a bit of an eye opener for sure. So was it ever uh, put, I mean, did anybody ever put pressure on you guys, especially in the OHL days, whether you're, I don't know if it would make a difference if you're 17, whether you're 19 about to go and play professionally that fighting is something that scouts are looking for. I mean, did you ever have a coach that went up to you or seen that went up to another player and said, Hey, you need to do this. Or there's scouts in the building tonight. Maybe there's more altercations. Did you notice a correlation with that? That never happened to me specifically. And, you know, I can't speak for other guys. I have heard other players make those claims, like say they had a coach tap them on the shoulder and say, it's time to go. Like, you know, your job here. That never happened to me. I never had a coach do that to me, but I feel like, um, you know, speaking as a player and in the team, the team mentality, certainly the culture and the way I felt as a player was that you had to stand up for your teammates. And if that meant dropping your gloves and fighting, then you would do it. And because it's, part of the game and allowed and you only get five minutes for doing it and then let you come back and play some more that it was something guys did for each other and you know every team's a little bit different in that way too like they sometimes you'll hear guys talk about team toughness where maybe teams are willing to you'll stand up for your teammate and guys certainly appreciate that um, but from the coaching side, no, I never, I personally never had a coach give me the tap on the shoulder or say, you need to go out there and fight. I think most guys too, when you talked about scouts being in the crowd, in the stands, I think as a player, you kind of make some of those mental calculations yourself. You know, how, what am I willing to do to uh, be noticed? I mean, we've all got different skill sets. I was always a terrific, I was always a good body checker. And I don't, I think it was a skill I learned as a young kid from maybe playing from hockey and lacrosse, like they were both physical sports. So I always knew for me that I knew how to throw big hits that were clean, open ice checks, just had a good technique for it. So I knew that was something for me that could change the tempo of a game. Hmm. So that's the way I, I always tried to influence a game. I mean, along with, I'd rather be a player, like, let me say this differently. I always had a skill set where I could score and make plays as well. So I thought if I could, if I could contribute as a, a point getter, throw big hits when they were required, take a hit to make a play. And then if you had to fight, you did it. You may not always win. I certainly was no tough guy. I knew that. 
But if you had to stand up when required, then those are the little things that would get you recognized. So who was the craziest or toughest player that you got to play with during the OHL? Well, I tell a story in my book. Um, I tell a story in Shattered Ice about my second year junior. So I had just come back from Washington. I was flying high, feeling really good. I got to play a couple exhibition games with the Caps. Um, things were going terrific. And coming back from there and then going back to junior hockey, I really felt like I was a step ahead of everybody. And I had this terrific start to the season. But anyway, in, the, in that, again, come back to Peterborough Pete's. My first OHL game that second season after coming home from Washington was against Peterborough. And our toughest player was Mark LaForge. Uh, he was arguably the toughest player in the OHL at that time, you know, in, arguably. But there was a rookie on Peterborough, and his, I'm sure you'll know the name. His name was Ty Domi. Yeah. And he was a rookie on the Peets. And I tell the story in the book how uh, 4G was a known uh, tough guy in the league that guys would you know be aware of. And there's a face-off in our end, and and Ty is we didn't know him at the time because he was a rookie in the Ontario League. But there's a and he, you know he was he's not the tallest man. 4G was six foot two, so he's chirping him at the face-off, chirping Mark saying. You know, probably the standard stuff you want to go or you know, whatever it was. We could see the chirping going on from the bench. So they dropped the gloves. Um, it was pretty much a draw that fight. It was pretty quick, but um, both of them went on to be very, well, they were very tough guys who uh, went on to careers professionally and, and continued uh, some of that physical presence. And we know what ties, what he did, uh, the whole Bob Probert, Ty Domi, I mean, they had several fights. Um, tell us so, a little bit, tell us a little bit about, we like to ask guys that are actually were, you know, blessed enough to be drafted in the NHL, uh, bring us to the, to the forum. What was your draft experience like? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, that's for me, one of my most memorable days, the draft year, that was 1986. The draft was at the Montreal forum as a kid growing up in Canada. I mean, the, the forum is, is the Mecca or, it was the place for hockey. Well, two places, Maple Leaf Gardens and the Montreal Forum. Those were the two like shrines of hockey for young Canadian hockey fans and even old Canadian hockey fans. I mean, so going to be able to go to the forum, and I know if you're aware, like in the old days when Toronto and Montreal, let's say the old days, in the original six <laughs> days when Toronto would play uh, Montreal, they would take the train. And so it was, uh, so I took the train with my agent, my parents, and his other Ontario clients from Toronto to Montreal for the 86 NHL draft. So just taking the train there was a really fun experience. Um, then you're, my agent, his name is Rick Curran. He's still involved today uh, with players in the NHL. He puts up his guys. I mentioned Mark LaForge. My Kingston teammate was also with Rick. So we were actually roomed together. Rick put us together. So that was great to be at the draft rooming with one of my teammates in Kingston. And to just go down to the forum, that would have been my first, that was my first time there to go in the building, even though the ice was out, see all the tables set up on the ice where the ice would be. Um, it was just a, an amazing day that I'll never forget. And uh, wow, what an experience. Absolutely. To go up on that stage I mean, and put the jersey on. We see that, you know, with the NFL draft, the NHL draft, 
when the the guys go up, big smile on their face, and they hand you that jersey, and you get to pull it over your head and just stand on the stage and look out and take it all in. It's it's really a, an amazing, memorable moment. Did you know that you were going to Washington, or was that a surprise? No. Um, well, they were one of the teams I did speak to before the draft. Um, one of their scouts, Sam McMaster, did come to see me in Kingston prior to the draft. Another short story is the general manager of the Kingston Canadians, his, his name was Ken Slater. And uh, in my rookie year in Kingston, he resigned because the Vancouver Canucks hired him as a scout. So I think talking, I remember talking to the Caps after the draft, Jack Button, their head of uh, player recruitment and development. I remember him telling me at the draft, he thought my old GM from Kingston, he thought the Canucks through Ken Slater were going to try and sneak in and take me under the radar perhaps before some other teams had an opportunity. And that that's why uh, Jack said they jumped. One of the reasons they jumped in when they did. Wow. That's a pretty good story. So I, I do have a question. I noticed going through your page you you had played your last year in the OHL, and I, I noticed that this has been a thing, especially back during this time in the 80s, where you played your last bit with the OHL, and then you jumped in, I take it the last half of the AHL season, you played with the uh, Binghamton Whalers in the AHL. How did that come about? How did you sign that deal? I mean, that was like right after the OHL season. You had to go there, right? Yeah, so what often happens, I signed with the Capitals in October of 86. So I was just talking about my right, my second year junior. Right after that first training camp, they signed me, the Capitals did, to a, a three-year deal plus an option. So I was under contract with them at the end of my junior career, which is the following season. And what they often do, and it still does happen today, especially with, with players under contract, what they'll do is once you're eliminated from your junior season, if there's still time left on the schedule, which is in my case there was because uh, my last year at Kingston, we didn't make the playoffs. They'll send you to their minor league affiliate. In that case, so in my case, the Capitals at that time shared a team with the uh, Hartford Whalers. That was the Binghamton Whalers in Binghamton, New York. So at the end of my junior season, the Capitals sent me there along with uh, you know, a bunch of their other prospects were there. And it's really an introduction to pro hockey. So they know you're going to be turning pro the following season as a 20-year-old. So they're giving you an introduction, see what the pro game's like, kind of see what the players do, how they respond, how they act, conduct themselves, get used to living on your own. Because now next year you're going to be leaving that billet family and likely living with a roommate in an apartment, most likely. So it's really just to give you a taste of pro hockey. And in my case, I went to Binghamton for six weeks. I was there for the last chunk of the season and uh, through their playoff games as well. And then when that season ended, went home and started preparing for the following year. So what was that transition like then? I mean, going straight from, I mean, I know you're playing with grown men. that are 19, you know, pushing 20 years old in the OHL. But I mean, you're going against guys who are, that, I mean, right below the NHL level. Uh, so what was that like having to transition your games to the AHL right away? Oh, it's a challenge. They're bigger. They're stronger. A lot of them have pro experience, um, even the National Hockey League experience. So they're, they're, they're a very, uh, what's the word? 
they know the ins and outs of the game. So from the junior level, they, uh, they can take the shortcuts to save steps, do things uh, that maybe you aren't doing as quick in the uh, junior ranks or your, and also your opponents aren't doing as quickly. So uh, maybe you have a, a big hole in junior hockey, that hole to get through in the pro game is smaller because the guys know how to close the gaps, take away time and space much better than the, the teenagers you're playing against in uh, junior. But I'll tell you one, uh, one story from my rookie season, the following season I played in Baltimore. So the Caps left Binghamton and they picked up their own team the following year and they moved all their NHL prospects to the Baltimore Skipjacks, the American League. And one of my first games in the American League with Baltimore was against our rival, which was the Hershey Bears. And Mark Lofthouse, he was a crafty veteran, played NHL time, also several years in the minors. So I'll just give you a, a real-time example of what I was just talking about. It was a rush coming back to our zone, a three-on-three type rush. So my two defensemen and then three Hershey forwards and me. So we're coming back. Numbers are even. So it's a three-on-three rush going through the neutral zone. And as we got to center, Mark Lofthouse grabbed my arm and spun me around. So in that moment, when he spun me around, it was likely a penalty, holding, interference, but it was just a crafty play. So he gained himself about a second on me. So by the time I corrected my, you know, my position, now I'm trailing him. He busted for the back post. That three-on-three three turned into a three-on-two, and now he's at the back post first, that one second ahead of me because he spun me around for the easy tap-in goal. And I remember skating back to the bench after that goal thinking no one ever did that to me in junior hockey before. <laughs> so that was just one of those crafty time and space moves that a, a, you know, a veteran player knew that he could do that to gain a little bit of room that turns into a goal. So those are little tricks that you learn along the way. Wow. Interesting. You've got you're one of the guys, uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I hope I'm getting this right. You actually were able to play a game in the old War Memorial at the old Johnstown Arena where uh, Slapshot, the greatest nice. movie in hockey, right, was filmed. Uh, what was that like? And when was that? Uh, that was about 1989, 89, 90 in there. It was surreal. Um, as a, so playing junior pro hockey, lots of long bus rides in the minors and in junior hockey. So videos are a big part of the movies on the VCR or DVDs. So Slapshot, as you mentioned, the classic mo hockey movie, we watched it many, many times on bus trips. So certainly knew the arena well from the movie. Had never been in there actually myself physically, but it was surreal. Yeah. To, uh, to, to drive into, just to drive into town was, was kind of eye-opening too because you see some of the scenes from outside the arena that are in the movie yeah so that captures you right away then we pulled up i remember walking in the concourse for the first time and it's exactly like you can see the movie taking place in your mind like it's exactly the same it was unchanged <laughs> um the dressing rooms exactly like a couple scenes in the movie and then once you go out to the rink um, it looked so familiar. <laughs> it was 
So that game we were playing, I'll give you a little more background on that game. That was a rookie game. And uh, what they did in the Caps training camp, we were playing the Bruins American League affiliate at the time, which was the Maine Mariners. So the game was billed as the Maine Mariners versus the Baltimore Skipjacks um, in, in, the, in that arena in Johnstown. So it was, uh, it was a home game for Maine. And to add to the a little bit of fuel to the story, they told us that some of the Johnstown's chiefs were had three of them had professional tryout contracts with Maine and that they were <laughs> going to be in the lineup to uh, earn a spot. So as I was saying earlier, um, everybody's got their own way to earn a spot in the pro hockey. And so, of course, the rumors would spread that it must be three tough guys trying to earn a spot. <laughs> um, <laughs> All I remember about that game on the ice was uh, the opening face-off and that off the opening face-off, the puck was dumped into our zone and one of our veteran defensemen went back for it. And this barreling winger came in on him and he wallpapered him to the end boards. Like it was kind of from behind, but like he put him sideways up against the wall with uh, a body check. And I remember just thinking, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> yeah. So did, uh, not to get off on a slap shot tangent, but in your opinion, Steve, do you think that the, the movie got the hockey culture at that time right? Or do you think that maybe the movie actually kind of influenced hockey culture from that point on? No, I think, you see, that, that movie even goes back to an era before me. And I think it was probably pretty accurate to the era in the 70s, would be my guess. I mean, I was the... I was a boy in the seventies <clears throat> and I think that minor league hockey at the time may have looked, I mean, not, maybe not that over the top, but it might've looked quite similar. And then moving into the eighties, things were starting to change. I mean, there was, it was, the, the game was definitely getting faster. Um, and the, the whole skill levels were starting to rise. I mean, you could see it. And even when I look at back, now at what I played in the eighties and in early nineties compared to the game I see today, it's an, it's faster again. Um, and the players are just, everybody's a skating machine. Now it, the skating has gotten uh, to a point where, I mean, it's the best it's ever been the speed of the game, taking away the red line and the way the guys train today. I, I love watching the game today. I like, get it's so fast. The passing is so precise. But to get back to your original point, I think, you know, that was a different era, that 70s old school, we would call it Rock of Sockham Hockey. That was Don Cherry's video series, but it was Rock of Sockham Hockey. It's just a different brand. So um, to kind of follow up on what you talked about, about, you know, faster players, um, I know the answer to this, so I'm going to try to set this up. So we're going to take you to your first NHL practice slash game, because I think you've got two great stories uh, one talking about practice with a two-on-one drill with uh, Dino Cicerello and uh, and then your first game with your former coach and uh, Bob Probert. So I'm kind of setting you up there, Seth. Yeah. So take it from there. All right. So I got called up in January of uh, 1991 for my first opportunity with the Capitals. So I was, you know, extremely proud and extremely ready for the opportunity. 
So to lead, you know, sometimes in the minors, you think you're working hard and you, you probably, I think we believe it, but there are, you get to the next level and then you see a different level of hard work. So my first practice with the caps after my recall was down in Mount Vernon uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. That was the caps practice facility at the time. And so I went out for practice, went through the paces. Terry Murray was the coach and he had coached me in the, in the American league as well prior to getting hired by the caps. So he was putting us through the regular paces and we lined up for a two on one drill and I was uh, lined up with Dino Cicerelli. I'm a left winger. Well, I am a left shot. He's a right shot. So it just happened. We were together on this particular two on one drill. My first time through the drill going up ice and coach blew, blew the whistle and Dino took off like he was shot out of a cannon. And I remember moving my legs as hard as I could to keep up to him. And he went, you know, we went straight to the net, like just boom, like just clockwork. Right. And I, we got back and filed back in line. I remember distinctly thinking to myself, this is what hard work is. This is what they mean by practice the way you play and practice at hundred percent. You can use all kinds of cliches, but he didn't need to say it to me. He showed me. And I guess that's the message for, you know, if there's any young players listening, like he demonstrated to me in that one drill, like if you want, okay, kid, you're up here. This is how we play. It's how we roll up here. And uh, he didn't need to say anything. So the lesson was learned uh, right there. And I never forgot that. So moving on, I'll just keep going. The next day, my first NHL game was the next day in Detroit. So we flew to Detroit and uh, growing up in Kitchener, Detroit's just a three hour drive down the highway, Highway 401, go straight to uh, Windsor, Ontario and Windsor and Ontario, and then right across the river is Detroit. So I grew up through my youth hockey, going to Detroit for different exchanges, tournaments, that kind of thing. So somewhat familiar with the area. So having my first game in Detroit was kind of special. And um, I'll give you a little bit more background. Previous year, Brian Murray, Terry's brother, was the coach of the Caps. Doug McLean was his assistant. They were fired by Washington and their landing spot was Detroit. So the following season, Brian Murray and Doug McLean were in Detroit. And Doug had also coached me in the American League in Baltimore. So I was familiar. It was like an old home week. We had Terry Murray coaching the Capitals and then his brother, Brian, and uh, his former, his assistant, Doug McLean, former Caps now in Detroit. So lots of familiar Washington faces going into this uh, home game for the Red Wings. So I'm skating around in warm up during uh, that first game. And I saw Doug McLean observing our end of the ice. So I was extremely nervous. I remember in my book, I say, I thought I was skating on ski moguls. That's how nervous I was during um, warm up. Like I felt like I was going over bumps and my skates were going over bump, over bump, over bump. And I remember having to talk myself down from that ledge to saying, this ice is flat, like every other ice surface, just like get your head in this. So I going around, I see Doug McLean. So I have this thought, I'm going to go talk to Doug or at least say hi to him because he's my <laughs> former coach and maybe he'll just calm the nerves. You know, I say, way to go, kid. Congratulations. You made it. something inspiring or calming. You know, I just had this feeling 
that's what I was going to get. And uh, he was my favorite coach too. I have to tell you of all my coaches in my life, Doug McLean was my favorite. So I want to make that clear. So I come around again for another pass. I go across the center red line. We make eye contact and uh, he looks at me. So I kind of lean in because I see he's going to say something. And he says, Hey, Seth, I told Probert, you're the goon called up from Baltimore. And I remember just doing a half turn. Now I'm going back up ice. And I did the double take, you know, the infamous, like, look back, like what? (laughs) Didn't say anything, just kept gliding up ice. And now my mind went into hyperdrive. And uh, I didn't know what to make of that at the time. (laughs) So anyway, I'll jump ahead, warm up ends. We go back to the room. You know, I didn't know uh, where if I'd be starting or not starting, I kind of thought I would not be starting, but so I sit down, Terry Murray says starting lineup for this game. We go on uh, Hunter Seftel Druce. So I'm starting with Dale Hunter and John Druce. So I'm, I'm ecstatic. I'm starting this game. So I make a long story short. We go up, we line up on the blue line. Okay. Oh, uh, the star spangled banner, of course, uh, and I'm on the blue line. So you always want to know who you're up against. And I look across to the other side. I'm a left winger. And sure enough, on the other side is 24 white Bob Probert. And I know he's a right winger and he will be standing right beside me. So now I'm thinking, hey, did McLean mean that? Did he really tell him I'm the goon from Baltimore? Um, so skipping ahead. I, was, I read Bob Probert's book years, years later. And I remember one of the things in his book, he said, if you were a rookie called up, he did not give you the time of day. Like you had to earn the right to mix it up with him. So I really had nothing to worry about because I wasn't planning to mix it up with him. (laughs) And he certainly uh, wasn't planning to mix it up with me, but it was just shows you the little mental parts of the game that uh, the mental games guys can play with each other. It was a great game. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, memorable moment. We won it in overtime. And, uh, wow, what a memory. Like, I'll never forget that. It is a, that is a chapter in my book, which I call the goon from Baltimore. <laughs> so, so did you, uh, I mean, what was your thoughts afterwards? Or, I mean, you know, clearly you're probably like, okay, cool. He was just messing with me, but were you kind of sitting there like, why would he do that? Why would he mess with me like that? I'd be scared. <laughs> um, you know, and, and no, after the game, it's like I said, it's one of those games within the game. You're on to the next game. So like, soon as that game ends and we 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 were won so we won the game i remember going out with the guys after dinner and then it's on to the next one like we were flying to philadelphia and uh it was the old spectrum so my mindset like you talk about being mentally prepared that game was now once that game ended in detroit it was over and i'm thinking about the spectrum now which is another intimidating place to yeah. play in the old Philadelphia spectrum and the caps and flyers hated each other arch rivals in the old Patrick division. So I wasn't even thinking about Doug McLean anymore. I would totally moved on to the next thing, which was the flyers. Cool. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 I think you have the right to be nervous if you're lining up against Bob Probert. Yeah. But uh, you know, interesting too, we had done um, just a, a, for our listeners, the, a Bob Probert story we had on Jim Thompson. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Jim. He played yeah. in LA. I played with and, Jim. Oh boy, all these Washington connections. He played in Baltimore played with me yeah. for one year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim uh, told a story uh, of uh, something about uh, doing a, a, a golf charity thing years and years 
later uh, with Bob Perber and, or actually, no, they did some, they filmed a movie or something. Anyway, uh, he stayed at Bob Perber's house with him and, and he says, you know, I, I was so scared when, uh, you know, I thought I had to fight you and blah, 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 blah. And how it kind of, you know, he was, he couldn't sleep the night before. And uh, Probert said, how do you think I feel? Uh, he said, uh, knowing that I'm getting older and I have to fight every new guy, tough guy that wants to prove himself. They want a shot with me. And at some point I have to give it to them. And he was saying, you want to talk about stress and anxiety try that. And, and, he's, and Jim Thompson said, you know, I never thought of that. I just thought you were the iron rock and you didn't care. He said, but no, I took a, a, a huge toll on him mentally uh, to have to have that responsibility of being the tough guy. Wow. That's a, uh, that's a great story. And it, it, it's a kind of makes me think of, you know, you have to walk in somebody else's shoes, that old saying before you really understand what they're going through. Yeah. And uh, wow. Yeah. I, I, I would have thought like Jimmy Thompson thought that that those things wouldn't bother a Bob Prober, but yeah, until you walk in someone else's shoes. Yeah. What that would be a great amount of stress night after night. You're right. So we, we talked a little off air um, about uh, another player and we do have a Tulsa uh, listener base here. And uh, we, we mentioned Rob Murray. If you can give our Tulsa fans maybe a little bit of a, a, a Rob Murray experience that you've had with him. Rob Murray and I were played against each other in the Ontario Hockey League. He again, was a Peterborough Pete. I was a Kingston Canadian. We were, he was drafted by the Washington Capitals, I believe the year before me in 1985. And uh, I was drafted in 86. He turned to pro the year before me. And then we were teammates. So on that, when I was saying a few minutes earlier, the Capitals moved their AHL affiliate to Baltimore that first Baltimore skipjacks team with the Capitals uh, affiliation, Rob Murray and I were teammates uh, on that team. Terry Murray was the head coach and uh, we had a good group of guys. We didn't make the playoffs that first year. Second year, I believe Rob was up and down with the skipjacks and the Capitals. And he, he started to kind of make his mark with the caps again in the third year, but in the third year, um, Rob and I were line mates with uh, another former first round draft pick of the Capitals named Jeff Greenlaw. Uh, Jeff was drafted the same year as me in 86. He was first round, the first rounder. I was a second round pick and uh, Rob Murray, Jeff and I were uh, kind of the caps or the skipjacks checking line on, for coach at that time was coach Rob Laird. Uh, on the skipjacks and uh yeah we had a great season the three of us uh rob also again i think all, actually all three of us that year had time with the capitals and i think uh we were a formidable line in the american hockey league at that that season and uh, even though we were we had a lot of high-end talent on that team like alfie turcott steve Malte, john purvis Doc, tim taylor like we had two scoring lines and then uh well, Kenny Albert, the Kenny Albert, the uh, very famous now play-by-play -play guy for uh, NHL, NFL, NBA, MLB. Kenny Albert's first pro gig was with the Baltimore Skipjacks. Ah, cool. So uh, he called our games that year when uh, the three of us were, to, Rob and Jeff and I were together. He kind of called us the Skipjacks grind line that season. 
So we could score, but we were also kind of the shutdown line on that team. Uh, yeah, then uh, I believe Rob got traded. So uh, I think he ended up with the win. Ended up uh, not too long after that season, going to the Winnipeg Jets organization, yeah, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So we kind of lost uh, touch at that point. But I've watched. I followed his coaching career over the years. I'm not surprised he is a coach. He was always a, a leader in the dressing room. One of those heart and soul guys who uh, I talked earlier about players who would step up for their teammates. Rob Murray was a player who would always step up for his teammates. That's one thing I say about him. One of those hardworking guys too, who uh, he never needed to tap on the shoulder to, to uh, get ready for a game. Like he was always ready to play and he never took a night off. So I'm not surprised he's a coach. He's a terrific leader. And um I'm sure he's doing a great job. I mean, he's been coaching for almost two decades, I think. Yeah. So good. Yeah. that's great for him. Yeah, he's doing great here. Uh, he just got a two-year extension, so he'll spend at least six years here in Tulsa. And he's developing a great culture, you know, um, you know, not to pick on Tulsa. We're not from Tulsa, even though we live here. Uh, but, you know, everybody in the East Coast League wants to go play in Florida, you know. Mm, no one yeah. wants to come to Tulsa, but he's really developing a good culture where players are really starting to want to come here, and he's he's doing he's doing great. But uh, anyway, so um, I want to f- uh, get back to uh, a little bit about the book and a little bit about sort of the the darker side of things, if you don't mind. And uh, in today's hockey, I could be wrong. NHL teams, you have so many coaches, trainers. Uh, prof- uh, uh, specialty trainers. You have a dietitian where they teach these young guys what to eat, when to sleep, what to do, and you also have uh, mental health counselors to help players when they're not feeling confident or if they're really struggling. You didn't have that, Jeff, and you did struggle with a lot of uh, mental health issues to the point that you kind of kissed off hockey. It was out of your world. You you left it, uh, you had, you know, you've slowly came back to it, but it wasn't until you wrote this book in 2018, I believe. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in 2018, what I would say to you guys, uh, Andrew and Jim, is I had a suitcase that was packed too full and uh, a lot of traumas and, and things that I had just put away and not dealt with men, from the mental uh health aspect and I just buried those things and in our day that's what it was that's what we were told to do I, I say in the book uh, kind of my personal mantra which I can see now as a was a harmful one my personal mantra was suck it up and eat the pain right and I got that line from the movie platoon believe it yeah. or not oh, yeah well that was going to be one of my questions you know uh you're talking about the the uh, uh Tom Bergeron scene right where he says eat, yeah eat the pain and t- take it take it take it yeah yeah. yeah, there's a scene that, yeah, there's an injured soldier and Tom Berenger says, I remember my team, our team went to see that movie together in Kingston, uh, platoon in the theater. And I remember he put his hand over the soldier's mouth and he said, eat the pain. And that's where that started for me because it seemed perfect for my hockey training that we were told to soldier on. You put the team first, you don't deal with your own problems. You put the team and go forward with the team and suck it up, eat the pain. And it's not, okay. you know, t- 
today we say it's okay to be not okay. Back then, we didn't feel it was okay to not be okay. So you buried everything. You you uh, buried it in deep, and you worried about playing your sport or doing what you do best. And but when you don't deal with those issues, one of the things I learned through my therapy is if you don't deal with those issues, three things can happen. Uh, you can either implode you explode or you get sick. And that was one of the things that rang for truth and, uh, for me. And certainly one of the things that really struck me when I went to see a, a psychotherapist. So you implode and we've got people committing suicide, self-harming. You explode, which is hurting others, slashing out physically. And then the third one, getting sick. In my case, I got physically sick and it was really at the time inexplicable like my my joints and my shoulders and knees started swelling that was kind of the beginning of it and then I got to a point where I couldn't get out of bed and I didn't want to get out of bed that was in 2018 so I part of my therapy is kind of coming I did like I just mentioned I went to a psychotherapist started talking about these things and I started writing the book that's how the book started and I just started putting it on paper and uh telling all those stories that I had never told. Initially, I would say it was dark. And I was working with an editor and my editor said to me, is this, 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 she kind of said to me, like, this is dark. Is this the story you want to tell? And after I thought about it, it wasn't the story I wanted to tell. It was part of it, but I wanted the book to focus more on the, the journey and the joy along the way and, and the great parts of, of playing hockey. But it was a cathartic, journey to actually get those thoughts out on paper so um let me ask you this because i've had i guess i've done this so i'll i'll, I'll be honest but i know that i've had colleagues uh, and and i'm a i'm now a, a university professor but i you know taught high school music and orchestra for a, a number of years so i've had a lot of other teachers and 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 colleagues and they would, when they're upset, especially with someone else, either a supervisor or whatever it might be, they would write all their thoughts down in an email. And I'd be the person that would say, don't hit send. But the fact that they were able to write down, it was very, like, like you said, it was good therapy for them to get it out of their system, thinking that they're, they're talking to this person or whatever, getting it off their chest. And they felt a lot better doing that even though they didn't click the send they had to go through that process yeah is that similar of what what you went through or no i think there's some uh, com similar comparisons there yeah but am i might at the point when i started kind of going down that path for myself i was really sick and uh i was having trouble functioning in society i think that's the big one of the big messages i try to tell people like it's okay you'll feel some people feel anxiety, you feel stress. That's part of being human. But when it stops you from functioning day to day in your regular activities, then you really got to buckle down and find out, share with someone, talk to someone, see your doctor and find out what's causing these problems. But I certainly what you're explaining is another way to, to get thoughts out. But if you can, uh, in that case, I'm guessing these co-workers continued on with their kind of day, daily activities or their job. 
Yeah, they, they, they did. But I just wonder if it, if it sort of started, like when we were talking with Shane Corson, you know, he was very open and honest about, you know, he took a beating in Toronto. He, he loved going to the Maple Leafs, but he would have so many panic attacks. And like you said, he was, um, he was uh, getting physically sick. He couldn't play. And of course the fans got on his case, the management got on his case. And then he almost went to what you described, the imploding, where he's thought about actually really hurting himself and contemplated suicide of there's no other way out of this. And, uh, you know, he, he had to get the help he had. But I'm wondering if it does it start at at like uh, uh, in the family or at work that you can't function before it gets to I can't function in society? I think you just need to be self-aware and. One of the things that comes with that self-awareness is self-care. And you got to look after yourself first. It's something else I heard recently. It's hard to love others if you don't love yourself. So I think what happens with a lot of people who suffer from mental health issues is they start to go down this path of self-loathing and feeling like you're not worthy of of just being. And if you can be more self-aware and practice some self-care and then get the help. So part of that self-care is saying, what do, who do I got to talk to? Because in the past, like I said with myself, I wouldn't have talked to anybody. I wouldn't have talked to my parents. I wouldn't have talked to my wife. I never shared any of these feelings. And over time, they built up to a point where uh, they just came bursting out. And I found myself in bed, not wanting to get out of bed. It's a challenge. But I think today we're starting to finally take the top off some of this stuff. I know for myself, when I went, first went to see a psychotherapist a couple of years ago, she, she asked me up here, we have a, a program called Bell Let's Talk. And she asked me if I knew Michael Ansberg. He's a, a TSN host up here. And I, I knew him through uh, sports. And I went and watched a, a talk he did on YouTube. And it, it was the first time I ever heard someone speak about mental health. That was 2018. So, I mean, it's just three years ago. Prior to that, you know, to going back in 2018, I never heard anyone talk about mental health. So it tells you how fresh this still is for all of us. And to hear someone talk about it was one of the biggest reliefs for me that I had in my life up to that point that I realized I wasn't the only one. Like up to that point, I didn't think anyone else felt like this. So when you talk about, you know, you had mentioned Shane Corson. As athletes, we didn't even share this with each other. I didn't, right. I wouldn't have thought other athletes were feeling the way I do. And I know off air earlier, we were talking about Simone Biles. Like yeah. I'm captivated by this story this week with the Olympics and with, with her, again, I talk about self-awareness, like the fact at that moment in her career at the Olympics and the great, you know, the, with all that pressure and focus from the entire world, she was able to make that decision. Like, to say I'm not right mentally and I can't compete because it could jeopardize my health. I just, it says a great deal about where we're moving and it's all positive. And it's, yeah, you know, I, where we say up here, it's okay to be not okay. Yeah. And I think 15, 20 years ago, it, she would have gotten, Oh, you're not a team player. You're selfish. You're that. I mean, she, I think she would have been really raked over the coals and uh, but you know, we have, changed and it, uh, uh, another one of our guests I can't remember uh, struggled a little bit and he had mentioned that 
once he started being open about it and started talking about it, he started to realize, like you just said, that we're not alone with this. And it just seems to be more of a common problem rather than a, oh, I'm just a, an outlier. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, yeah, just watching the activities this week and at the Olympics and seeing that kind of courage for an athlete to come forward and say, this is what I'm dealing with. I need some help from the coaches, from doctors. I can't do this alone. Like it was uh, really a revelation, I thought, to uh, for the whole mental health movement. I mean, I, w- I wish I had that bravery or knowledge, understanding when I was an athlete. I, it would have been a, a game changer, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing. Well, we can move on to the lightning, lightning round. round. All right, so, so if we're going to finish off with um, a fun note, we have our little lightning round where we're just going to ask fast questions. Okay. And if you can give us just a one or two word answer, if you want, if you have a story, you can share it. Um, but we find that we try to uh, make you think a little bit, ask you something you might not have been asked before. Because I know most of your interviews, I mean, I've checked a few of your podcasts, you know, we're asking the same type of questions, but it's important to, you know, get the message out as well. But here we go. Want me to start? Go ahead. All right. Favorite teammate in any league? Scott Pearson. Which player, let's go back to the OHO as well, had the innate ability to get under your skin? Mm. Rob Ray. Oh, boy, that's a good one. Favorite arena to play in? I'm going to have to say the Hershey Park Arena. Okay, and why is that? Just because of the nostalgia. It wasn't my home rink. The Bears were our arch Hershey Bears were our arch rivals when I was in Baltimore. But that rink, they don't make them like that anymore. Like, it had... I mean, I almost have to see the old Hershey Park Arena to appreciate it. It was built, I believe, in the early 1930s. Um, and it was it was old-time hockey. Like we talked earlier about Slapshot and old-time hockey. That rink could tell some stories. And so many old-time hockey players played there because the rink is so old. Like it's, And it's the Bears have been in the American Hockey League for decades. So... I mean, you, you could interview dozens and dozens of players. and It's just an amazing arena. And I'm sure almost everybody's played there once, who, for any pro hockey player who's been so, uh, in the minors. Just to go off topic a minute, Andrew, because, uh, you know, you're old enough, experienced enough that you've played at some of these arenas. I got to ask, uh, just any impression. So Maple Leaf Garden, I know you played in the old Maple Leaf Gardens. You're right. Uh you know, I forgot about that one. Maybe <laughs> there's so many good rinks. Yeah, I didn't. I did play them, and I played in the Forum too. Um, but I was thinking the, the Hershey Park Arena. I played in more time. Maple Leaf Gardens. As a kid, tr- growing up an hour from Toronto, that was my uh, dream rink for awesome. sure. So, uh, what about Joe Lewis? You, you played oh, Joe Lewis, yeah. right? Yeah, I watched uh, one of my first as a Teenager, one of the first NHL games I ever saw was at the Joe Louis Arena. I mentioned earlier I had different hockey exchanges in the Detroit area, so I was in that building several times. Yeah, it was a, it's a good one. Nice. Okay. Which, which arena had the worst ice conditions? Ah, yeah. 
Worst ice conditions. Boy, I'm going to say uh, for me, it was Springfield, Springfield, mm -hmm. Massachusetts. The Springfield. Okay. Yeah, that's another old time hockey barn. Yeah. Uh, the most embarrassing or craziest moment to happen to you in a game. Most embarrassing or crazy moment to happen in a game. Oh, that's a tough one. Either, either so, because you can't think of well, one or you can't, you can't choose okay. the right one. <laughs> okay, no, I got one. This, this is a start. This is more of, this is a chapter in the book. And I think it, it's worthy of, you said embarrassing. So I'm going to yeah. put this right up there. The Kingston Canadians, my last year junior, 1987-88, lost 28 hockey games in a row. And that is a Canadian Hockey League record to this day. Or sorry, OHL. It's an OHL record to the, this day. Uh, 28 games. So, and you know why this the record ended? Uh -uh. We ran out of games. We lost our last 28 games. Jeez. So in, theor in theory, <laughs> that could have been longer. But we lost... <laughs> We lost our last 28 games and that's an OHL record to this day. So that is my most embarrassing moment for sure as a hockey player. Didn't you tell a story? I forget where, maybe it was a podcast. I heard it uh, that uh, you had somebody that uh, wanted to have you on the show interview. You thought it was going to be a great interview. Talk about your career. And it was like, so what was it like to be on the worst team in OHL history? <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Is so that, the way that happened. Wow. The way that story goes is uh, <laughs> on the 20th anniversary of that season, which would have been uh, um, 2008. Yeah, 2008. I got a call from a reporter from the Kingston Whig Standard, which is the local paper in Kingston, and he said, uh, "I'd like to interview. I'd like to interview you, Steve." And he called me at my home. And in my head, I was thinking, wow, this is flattering. He wants to interview me uh, regarding my hockey career and playing days. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me, yeah, I'm doing a story on the 20th anniversary of the team that lost 28 games in a row. I'd like some of your feedback. <laughs> well, so I mean, my what's, your, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, like well, that, we lost. My puffed out chest went straight down to slumped shoulders instantaneously. <laughs> And then once I got my ego out of the way, I actually thought it was kind of funny because uh, it was such a, it really is a story. Like it, it's, a, it's a whole chapter in the book. It's called the chapter in the book is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why that team lost 28 games in a row. And I, I spell them out from a player's perspective in that chapter, but it's uh, yeah, it's a remarkable that's I would also like to clarify that it was a CHL record at the time, Canadian Hockey League. So all the three junior ranks in Canada, the Western League, the Quebec League, and the Ontario League. But on the CHL level, it's since been broken. Somebody, another team from the Western League, I think they beat it with 31 losses wow. in a row. But uh, at the OHL level, it's still in the OHL record book. Wow. So who was the toughest player you had to fight even back in the OHL that I had to fight. Yep. Um, 
I say Luke Richardson. Uh, he's mm-hmm. currently, if you followed the Stanley Cup playoffs, he's a he was an assistant coach now with the Montreal Canadiens. And when their coach came down with some COVID, uh, a positive COVID test, Luke had to step up and uh, take on the head coaching duties in the in the finals in the last couple of rounds. Was that in the, I guess in the Vegas round, I think. Yeah, I but anyway, so. uh, he played, I don't know, keep coming back to the Peterborough Peets, but uh, <laughs> Luke played for Peterborough and uh, was a first-round draft pick of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Toughest goalie to play against. Toughest goalie to play against. Wow, there's so many good ones there. I'm going to have to think to my era. I'm going to say, uh, say Sean Burke, who okay. uh, former devil. I believe he's still coaching. He uh, played for Canada, the Olympics. He had a great career. Played for the Toronto Marlboros in junior. And uh, wow, he's just a really outstanding individual and great goalie. Now, I know this this last question is usually a very generic, broad question. And I know that you had mentioned earlier um, in the in the show that um, your draft story is one of your favorite stories. But other than the typical, I mean, you're, between your first NHL game and the draft story, what is another kind of out of the box favorite hockey memory from your career? Okay. Well, this one, well, memory. Um, so I'll give you, how about, can I give you a two for this yeah. last one? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I, so there's, <laughs> we mentioned Maple Leaf gardens um, in junior. So I said, as a kid, I was a leaf fan. I was there actually a saber Buffalo Sabres fan when I was young. And then, uh, when I was about eight, nine, I became a Leaf fan. Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald, those those Leaf teams in the late 70s. So I grew up as a boy watching the Leafs. The Leafs run hockey here twice a year or twice a week when I was a kid. And this is pre like TSN and ESPN days. You had to watch on cable TV. So when I, like, when I played junior, this is an infamous story. The Toronto Marlboros were in our division in the Ontario Hockey League back then. And during warm-up, one of our players skated into the Marley zone and went right behind their net. And that started a pregame. This was in pregame warm-up, and that started a pregame brawl. So it's kind of, like I said, it's an infamous story, but I participated in a pregame brawl at Maple Leaf Gardens, the rink I grew up always wanted, dreaming of playing in. So uh, when I was yeah, 18, we had a pregame brawl there at the Marlies. That was a, that's an infamous memory. But uh, otherwise, like you mentioned, I mentioned the Hershey Park Arena. I scored. So this is one of my great memories, too, from my playing days. I remember when I turned pro as a 20-year-old, I wanted so badly, desperately to get that first goal. I could just get that monkey off your back. So it was in game, my sixth game. I talked about the Hershey Park Arena. It was in Hershey against the Hershey Bears. So I got my first professional goal as a 20 year old in uh, at the Hershey park arena playing for the Baltimore skipjacks. And uh, that was a great memory. Just, uh, and I said, I love playing in that building. They were our rival, And I have a lot of great memories of playing on the road in that barn. Wow. Now um, I'll just follow up with this. So if the guy skated into the zone in pregame warmup, wasn't he the old junior days? If you had a skate over the red line, that was enough for a war, right? Yeah, that's right. This was beyond anything any of us had ever seen. 
<laughs> and, like, what is uh, he doing? What is he doing? <laughs> to add to the story, I'll just tell you a bit of the background. So when we when we came out onto the ice, you know the old groin stretch, like the guys get down on their knees and they do the yeah. groin stretch. So guys would do that around the perimeter. So the Marlies were already on the ice stretching around the perimeter. We came out, our goalie turned to the right, headed towards his crease. Everybody follows around the net, like the typical warm-up fashion. But one of our players, as he got started coming, he went around the net, started coming up the side. Instead of turning at center and just doing the regular half sheet of ice, he kept skating and went all the way into their zone, <laughs> past every guy stretching on the wall and around their net, back up the other way. And I, I knew that wasn't going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it didn't. Uh, he almost got back just as he was getting to center, coming back the other way. Some of their players intercepted him. And uh, I mentioned uh, Mark LaForge, one of our tougher guys. He uh, got involved at center and then all hell broke loose. And yeah. those days, I'll give you a little another piece of this story. In those days, referees weren't on the ice back then. Like right. this is old school somewhat. So it was chaos. Like I remember the, uh, the, the guys working in the arena coming down, the parents were all screaming and the fans in the ranks were all yelling. And the, the guys working in the rink, kind of the ushers in their Toronto Maple Leaf garden suits, the ushers were making their way down to the ice, trying to break it up kind of as best they could. And I don't really remember how it all, how long it lasted. It was fairly long though. And, but what I was going to go with this is after that game, the OHL put in a rule that's still in place today that before the visiting team goes on the ice, the linesmen have to be on the ice ready for warm up. There you go. So, I mean, what's, I'm curious, just had to follow up with this, you know, just the certain guys that will start something, you think of the Sean Avery's or Brad Marchands, it takes one person to cause a whole, whether it's a line brawl, whether it's bench clearing, pregame. Do you guys as teammates go up to the said player after that started this and you go, dude, what's your problem, man? I didn't want to have to fight today and I'm having to fight your battles. <laughs> or was this the 28th game that you lost? <laughs> no. <laughs> Now that's a good point right there. That would be a good reason to go 28 yeah. losses. No, actually, this was the season before that. And I have to tell you, our team, after a brawl, guys are just so jacked up. Um, there's really no discussion of why'd you do that. It's just okay. It's just kind of the chaos continues into the dressing room, and everybody is so hyper after a brawl that um the talk is just like kind of just trying to come back down to earth that's crazy wow wow shattered ice i got mine on kindle i know there's a paperback on amazon and also i saw which i'll have to listen to an audio uh book of this narrated by the author himself cool um but we want to make sure that the listeners uh, uh can get a hold of that i'm pretty sure everybody would do it through amazon but is that the only uh for uh, at least on the American side that they can get this book is through Amazon or is it? Yeah. In the U S it's got, it's through Amazon. Uh, you're right. Kindle it's on Kindle, Kindle unlimited and audible. And I have to tell you, I just add in, I, I, uh, narr as you mentioned, I narrated the audible version and, uh, what a great experience that was. I had, obviously I'm not a 
a narrator of books, but I just wanted to tell my story in my voice. And uh, my wife and son kind of encouraged me to go that route. And once I started it, initially I wasn't really keen on it, but once I started it, I really am pleased that and glad that they told me to do it myself because it is, you know, I knew the inflection points. I knew when the stories that had a little more passion for me, I knew when the stories like 28 losses in a row, when to say this, when to kind of go down and say, this sucks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a great experience uh, narrating my own book and the audible versions done quite well. And I've been, I'm really proud of that. And yeah, the paperback is through, can be purchased through Amazon. I think and Amazon has been great for me because it's very global. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a couple down under as well. I sold the uh, one was sold in Australia and another one in New Zealand. So cool. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. It's been a great experience, the whole writing of the book and getting that message out there. So since, uh, since the book and everything else, and, and I know that uh, Doug McLean uh, wrote the forward to the book, are you starting to get back into the hockey community or are you just kind of, just kind of just lukewarm about it? I certainly, the book certainly brought me back to the hockey community. You know, I had pushed them away for almost 20 years. Like I really didn't want to see, it was part of the whole sure. you know, mental health and mental health and wellness. Uh, I did not wanting to deal with the old issues, but certainly they've welcomed me back in. And I mean, I wouldn't say I jumped in with both feet, but I've reconnected with a lot of people through the book. So it's been a really rewarding experience that way. And I certainly rekindled some old relationships with former teammates and coaches that I wouldn't have if I didn't write the book. So it's been great experience that way. And I still coach up here. That's really my big passion now is uh, giving back to my local community. I'm, I grew up in Kitchener, Kitchener Waterloo up here is Twin Cities, uh, the community I live in. And I am coaching youth hockey up here and having a lot of fun with that the last few years. Nice. Well, Steve, I know that uh, we've gone over our time. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time and we appreciate you coming on yes. our podcast. This has been, uh, for us, it's been great. Hopefully it's been a good experience for you. And we've been looking it forward has, to for this, sure. man. We've been looking forward to this. Yeah, Andrew, to when, do yeah this. when Andrew booked this, he's like, man, we got to, have you checked out this book? And I said, no, no, I haven't. So we've, uh, you know, we've, we've got our players booked for the future, and this is one that we've been really looking forward to. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's been a great chat. And, uh, yeah, we got to talk about a lot of good memories, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, hang on one sec. We'll say goodbye off air. Shattered Ice listeners, check it out. Great, great guy. Uh, and, again, uh, the book tells – everything about his story and all the challenges and everything else he's gone through and we want to be serious because we've had other guests that have come on that have had mental health struggles whether it be panic attacks whether it be depression whether it be all sorts of things and it's a it's a real thing we're in a society today that we we're um it's okay to say hey i think I got an issue and I need to uh, talk to somebody about it and get some coping skills, get some help, get whatever. Right. I think that that's normal. And I think that uh, it's normal for people to struggle mentally. Everybody does for human. And uh, I think it's just important that, you know, the message he kept saying is just talking about it, just being able to say, you know, I don't have to act tough. I don't have to put on a facade. 
and, you know, swallow the pain or eat the pain that he was talking about. It's okay to not be okay. And I feel like a lot of the Bell Let's Talk has great messages, has great little one word, one sentence things I like a lot that, you know, plays big into mental health. And I just think it's great to have on those guests that are willing to be open and talk about their issues. And and again, and nobody wants to have their private life public. Right. And because these uh, uh, people have, you know, played professional sports and are well known that they're willing to kind of sacrifice a little bit of their privacy to help. It's not like, you know, they just want to, they're not being egotistical by saying, Oh, I want to talk about this for me. I mean, they're doing it to help others. And, and the more that uh, people talk about, Hey, that happened to me, or I feel like that, or have felt like that. So uh, I'm glad that we've progressed as a society that we're, you know, yep. Because like you talked about when I was, you know, back in the day, him and I are around the same age, you know, you, you were a man, you didn't talk about those things, you right. know, and your dad, you know, and grandfathers were stereotypical quote men back in the day and you hid your feelings, you're mm-hmm. the strong, silent type. Um, and maybe that's not the best way to do it. Right. And, uh, you know, we all kind of struggle and we always have that, oh shit moments or what did I get myself into moments where, you know, we wouldn't want to you know, admit that to people, but uh, it's okay. Well, and the cool thing about these stories is too, and it's not cool because we're obviously talking about mental health, but uh, they're people just like us. We kind of forget that when they're professional players or we obsess over them for their talents, or if they're a celebrity, an actor, actress, whatever it may be, they all feel the same pain that normal humans do. I mean, even if they're rich, even if they're not, everybody goes through basic human problems that we all face every day. And I think that that's uh, important to remember with these guys. Cause uh, you know, like Boston fans still getting on Tuka Rask, leaving for his family in the bubble. And it's still kind of, you know, crazy that that's even still um, a talk, but I'm glad that the majority of people now are for mental health and for doing what's right for you and not just what you're expected to do. Yeah. And there's uh, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this, but we'll we'll keep this real short here because we're running long. The Simone Biles thing that we were talking yep. about with him. And before we recorded, we were talking about it with, with Steve. And, you know, back in the day, and there's still some people that would be like, you know, she was a terrible teammate because sure. she let her team down, blah, blah, blah. She put herself before the team. That's not sacrifice. And, uh, you know, you have those types. You even have some... Uh, some former gymnasts that kind of passive aggressively are making waves as well. You know, one of them was, uh, uh, I think someone had talked about, and it's not, I'm not trying to demonize this person. Right. I'm just being not judgmental, but one of the former gymnasts, you know, she uh, had like a broken nose, like a broken wrist or something else. And she went on and she performed and got a gold medal and right. everything else like that. And so she has a different take on, you know, right. What it was, but at that point, it's like, was it mental or was it physical? Right. And obviously with Simone, I mean, I mean, if, you, if anybody wants to think they could do a better job than her, then go ahead and show us. Right. But uh, this is more of a mental thing. Right. And it's important to realize too, everybody's different. Everybody processes things different. Sometimes right. we struggle with understanding that with people's problems, but I think it's just important that people are there for each other. Simple as that. We got to be friendly. We got to stop the hate. I put it down to this. So every time, not that I have many surgeries, but it comes down to this. If I'm having a surgery for whatever, right? I always ask the doctor if they're having a good day. I do. I I ask the doctor, are you having a good day? And I say, 
and be honest with me. Because if you're not, we can reschedule this. Right. It's okay. <laughs> right. You like, I, if, 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 if you're at an argument with your spouse or having trouble with this or you're struggling with this, we can reschedule this surgery. I'm okay <laughs> with that. Yeah. Same thing, I'd like to talk to airline pilots and ask them, are you having a good day? Because if you're not having a good day, I might not want to get on the plane. <laughs> But yeah. yet we yell at we yell at you know our sports people thinking that well you know they get paid big money and of course Simone I I think she just gets uh, whatever it is. advertisement right? right but it's like you wouldn't want to get on a plane if right. the, if the pilot's like yeah I just don't know if I'm one if I if I can mentally do this today like I'm confused like I'm because that's yeah. part of her thing was she, yeah. when she gets up in the air she doesn't know kind of where she is it's almost like a vertigo type thing right yeah. We're it's all okay. human. Yeah. You're human. Would you want your doctor to do it? Like the doctor says, hey, look, you know, I'm kind of, you know. It's funny, I took your advice. I'm kind of not my, I'm not bringing my A game today. Yeah. It's like, we'll reschedule this. Yeah. It was like when I got my leg surgery, guy, you know, Dr. Ray Hall came in and said, hey, Andrew, you ready to go today? And I said, yep. Are you doing all right? You having a good day? And you yeah. went, ready to go. And I was like, okay. Right. So it's got to make sure that we're all good to go. And let's keep this in perspective, people. So next week, well, so we are, we always talk in past tense now because right. luckily we were able to get enough guests in a short amount of time that we're kind of spursing these out. Okay, right. The one after this, so we'll be recording next week. Episode 41. Yep. We'll have on Fred Knipshear. Yes. From, from the Bruins, um, or per, uh, former Providence Bruins. And there was another one I got to follow up with. He was supposed to give me some available dates. We just haven't been in much contact. We've been busy, but Darren Colburn, he was an ECHL championship winner a few times. So uh, for our minor league uh, fans that like to listen to those stories, we're going to have him on eventually. Right. Um, so and we'll work out a date with that. But for now, we're going to be doing some more um, guests. We're going to be reaching out to because now we're, you're going back to school. Right. We, and we do have uh, um, our, our favorite guest who comes on. Our, uh, That's right. Dave our our friend. Capiano is going to come yep. on. Um, he's uh, having some good things that's going to be happening that uh, we want to talk to him about that's recently happening with him. And uh, we don't want to spoil anything until right. things play themselves out. But he's going to come on end of the month or beginning of September. Cool. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about his career and some experiences that he's going to be happening this month. And uh, so we've got great things happening. We want to thank everybody and our right. listener base uh, watching our demographics yep. that we do sometimes uh, we're having more and more listeners yep. a lot of UK listeners and I know that we're not like some crazy super professional out there podcast but we love doing what we do so we appreciate the people that do take the time to check out our father and son duo um, and, and are making it even possible for us to keep doing this and keep talking to hockey players and having them share their stories with us so right. it's pretty nice we're able to do to do this. Everybody, appreciate everybody. Everybody take care and right. we'll see you next time. All right, have a good one.